is it not? Well, uh, I don't know if uh, you've gone through many changes in your life, but uh, this year is a year of changes for the Klotzbach family, for our family. Um, my, our eldest daughter and her husband are about to make uh, us um, grandparents. Uh huh. Yeah. If that doesn't make you feel old, so um, yeah, I'm starting to I'm starting to feel it. I, I'm excited about the baby coming due in October. Um, it's just getting used to that name, Grandpa. <laughs> uh, so pr- pray for me. So. Uh, then my, uh, second, uh, my second daughter is getting married next month. Um, she's actually, she and the rest of my family are actually in Maryland right now. They had the wedding shower yesterday, and, and uh, so she's getting married July the 25th. And my, my son just got engaged as well, and whew. And then my youngest daughter, we're sending her off to, to college this year. So uh, that makes, I'm almost the What? An empty nester? Ooh, that's starting to make me feel old now. <laughs> so, so pray for us. Pray for us as a family. So I just thought I'd talk to you just for a second before we uh, dive into it. So if you would uh, grab your Bibles, we're going to be in the book of Ezra uh, today. We're going to be in the book of Ezra. If you just uh, open to uh, chapter 1, that's where, where we will be. <clears throat> and then we'll jump ar- around to the New Testament for a little bit. Uh, well, you've heard of this little thing called uh, the coronavirus, haven't you? At least in passing, you've heard of it. You know, the coronavirus, COVID-19, the Chinese virus, or, or whatever you want to call it. It's uh, turned the world upside down, hasn't it? Uh, but uh, of all the things I think that it has done, it has caused one very important thing to happen. It has caused a question to come to the forefront uh, for consideration. And that is this, what is essential for life? You've heard that discussion, haven't you? Have you? I've heard it, um, especially over the last several, well, it's gotten kind of covered up uh, with all the rioting going on and the protests. Um, You know, in in our society, it's been pretty obvious uh, that our governments, um, whether it's on the state or, or local or federal level, or even individuals haven't been able to agree exactly what those essentials uh, for life are. And so the question is, is food essential? Is medical care essential? Are haircuts or gym workouts, are they essential? Um, Is health essential? Are, Are issues of liberty essential? And what about the free exercise of, of corporate worship? Is that essential? And does any of these supersede the other? You know, your answer to these questions or that question about what is essential uh, actually totally depends on your worldview. So what what does it mean actually to be essential? Think about that for for, for a second. The dictionary defines the word essential as something that's absolutely necessary or extremely important, and in lay, lay terms, it means it's something I can't do without. As our society increasingly becomes more materialistic, 
Some of those ascent, uh, uh, questions about the essentiality to, uh, of things actually has changed over time. When we move from the idea that there is a God to the idea that all there is is what you can, can see or smell, touch, or, uh, or, or, or feel you know, with your, your senses, and, and that's, that's all that's real. It's called a materialistic uh, view of life. Our answers about what is essential in, in life and essential for life uh, change. When our world view shifts, our decisions that we make on a daily basis, they change. You know, and we've seen it played out in our government as well that uh, the decisions that they've made in, in regards to the control of, of this virus um, you know, we've seen their decisions and the reasoning behind their decisions. And we've heard some of these uh, government, uh, government uh, agencies declare quite loudly what their worldview is. You know, in some cases, they've declared that corporate worship is not one of those essentials. Even when great care of social distancing has been employed, um, even, even worship in cars out in a parking lot, uh, there has been decisions that, well, it's, worship isn't essential, so you can't come together to do that. Even in parked cars, not getting out of your car, listening to a radio. In essence, when decisions like that are made, that declare corporate worship is not an essential for life, they're saying that worship is not necessary or it's not extremely important for our human experience. You know, as believers, we should take exception to that. And so I thought it would be beneficial for us to look into Scripture and see how God views corporate worship. You know, corporate worship, when we say corporate worship, of course, that means the gathering of God's people for the sole purpose of, of adoration, of devotion, love, and and reverence. The question is, is really this, and it has to be a question for believers. Is corporate worship essential in God's eyes? Is coming together, or, or is individual worship sufficient? And so what I'd like to do is jump into uh, Ezra this morning, and um, there's several different illustrations that we could use throughout Scripture in regards to the importance of of worship, uh, but due to uh, time restraints, and I'm assuming you want to get home for lunch eventually, uh, we'll just uh, focus in on Ezra this morning. And so uh, before we begin our, our, our passage and start reading, I'd like to give you a little bit of a historical background on what, what's happened up to this point just before Ezra is, is written or the events in Ezra uh, take place. Now, if you're uh, familiar with your... Um, is, is Israel or biblical history, uh, you know that um, the nation of Israel was divided into to two nations. There were some bickering and, and power struggles that had happened, especially after the time of Solomon. And eventually the nation of Israel is divided into a northern kingdom and a southern kingdom. The northern kingdom was, was called Israel and the southern kingdom then was called what? Do you remember? Judah, that's right. Now, um, as a part of 
what, what, what had happened is this, is that God had eventually gotten fed up with Israel. He had had it up to here in layman's terms. And um, what, he, what he did is he brought a couple nations into their experience to kind of put, you know, bring the hammer down, really. And so he used two major world powers to kind of break them up, to break Israel up, because they had become a, a people of idolatry, idol worshipers. They had turned their backs on, on God in, in basically all areas of their life. And because of their sinful attitude, God then decided to bring two nations, um, Assyria and then Babylon, into the lives of Israel. So God called on the brutal empire of Assyria to conquer the northern kingdom. So in 722 B.C., Assyria came, conquered Israel, and then took them into captivity. And here's the kicker. They would never return to the land. While the southern kingdom, Judah, uh, had more episodes of good kings and times of faithfulness than the northern kingdom actually had, there came a point where God decided that he needed to break Judah as well. And so Assyria was eventually conquered by the Babylonians. And uh, so the, around the time of 597, uh, Nebuchadnezzar, Nebuchadnezzar came and, and really beat down uh, the southern kingdom of Judah and started taking exiles away. And uh, Eventually, this culminated with the destruction of Jerusalem and the destruction of the temple in 586 B.C. The major defining uh, difference, though, between the Assyrian captivity and the Babylonian captivity is that God had promised Judah, the southern kingdom, that after 70 years of, of captivity, they would be allowed to return. And so all that came to pass. Everything that, that God had prophesied through his prophets Jeremiah specifically, um, and, and Isaiah, uh, all this came to, came to pass. And so at this point in, in Ezra, um, the situation was that Jerusalem was destroyed. There's no wall around Jerusalem, the protection, protective wall around Jerusalem. And the heart of Jewish worship, the temple, had been demolished. In other words, corporate worship had ended by force. And so by, by the time we come to Ezra, what we're going to read here in just a moment, by the time we get here, 70 years had passed. And so uh, according to Jeremiah, you'll see here in a second, something was going to happen. The, the, Is, the Israelis were about to, to get a reprieve from their captors and be sent back to the land. And so there we are. Um, here in Ezra chapter 1, verse 1. Uh, another kingdom had come in. Babylon had been taken over by Persia, and now we have a new king. Uh, we have King Cyrus at the helm. And so as we begin to read this passage, I, I just want you to remember as we're reading through it that there is nothing special about Cyrus here, the king of Persia. He's not a believer in the one true God. Uh, he's a polytheist. And so I, I want you to just keep that in your mind as you read what we're about to read. Okay, so join with me in, in chapter 1 of, of Ezra, verse 1. Now, in the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, in order to fulfill the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah, the Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia, 
so that he sent a proclamation throughout all his kingdom, and also put it in writing, saying, Thus says Cyrus, king of Persia, The Lord, the God of, the he of heaven, has given me the kingdoms of the earth, and he has appointed me to build him a house in Jerusalem, which is in Judah. Who whoever there is among all, of all the people, may his God be with him. Let him go up to Jerusalem, which is in Judah, and rebuild the house of the Lord the God of Israel. He is the God who is in Jerusalem. And every survivor at whatever place he may live, let the men of that place support him with silver and gold and with, with goods and cattle together with a, fair, a free will offering for the house of God which is in Jerusalem. Then the heads of the fathers of the households of Judah and Benjamin and the priests and the Levites arose, even everyone whose spirit has been, had been stirred up and up and rebuild the house of the Lord, which is in Jerusalem. Verse 6. And all of those about them encouraged them with articles of silver and gold, with goods, with cattle, with valuables, aside from what was given in the freewill offering. Also, King Cyrus brought out the articles of the house of the Lord, which Nebuchadnezzar had carried away from Jerusalem and put in the house of his gods. And Cyrus, king of Persia, had them brought out by the hand of Mithridath, the treasurer, and he counted them out to Shezbazar, the, the prince of Judah. Now this was their number, 30 gold dishes, 1,000 silver dishes, 29 duplicates, 30 gold bowls, 410 silver bowls of every kind, and 1,000 other articles, all articles of gold and silver numbered 5,400. Shezbazar uh, brought them out up with the exiles who went from Babylon to Jerusalem. Woo! Let's pray. Father in heaven, we, we thank you for your word, and th this is an incredible story, Father, what you have done in the lives of your people. So, Father, as we dig into your word, help us to gleam what you would care for us to gleam this morning and apply it to our lives. Father, we know this is living and active and able to divide even between soul and spirit. So we pray that it would do that today. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Now, okay, we just read that. Did that not take your breath away? I mean, did, did you go, whoa, do you see what's going on here? This is an ungodly king. He's a king a conquering, uh, of a conquered nation, one that had inherited uh, a conquered Israel, people that he could use however he wanted, however he pleased. And he just decides to do what? He just decides to let them go. He doesn't just let them go, but he, he gave them a specific mission when they went to rebuild the temple of God for the Israelites. You know, this is not a believing. Like I mentioned, this is not a believing king. This is a king that would rather at any other time of the year enslave people put them to work to build his kingdom. And yet here we see God working in this, in this man to let the people go. He, you know, he let them go. He's going to have them build the temple of God for the Israelites. And then he doesn't just stop there. He goes on and then funds the project. He asks the Israelites, those that have a heart for the mission, to raise a free will offering. We've heard of that in Baptist circles, haven't we? A free will offering. Well, look at verse 6. Verse 6 
it goes on to say this, and all those about them encouraged them with articles of silver. It wasn't just the Israelites in verse 6. It was those that were uh, uh, around them. It kind of reminds me of what happened when the Israelites were coming out of Egypt and the Egyptians were so glad to see them go that they just they poured on silver and gold and food and anything they could to get them out. Get them out. You don't get that idea here. You get the idea that the people, I guess, had this love for the Israelites so much that they wanted to give to this project. The Israelites were now going home back to Judah, back to the land of Israel, to do what? To build the temple of the Lord. And they were going to be well-funded. Uh, look at Cyrus. Cyrus even digs into the coffers of his kingdom and pulls out a bunch of wealth, a ton of money, in the form of what? Those articles that were stolen from the temple of God. Can you see God at work here? Can you see God at work? Now, again, before we credit Cyrus of being a, a great, compassionate king who is so good to his people, we need to return to our passage to point out who is the actual agent behind this. Let's look in verse 1. Verse 1 again says this, Now in the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, in order to fill, fulfill the word of who? The Lord, by the mouth of Jeremiah, the Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia. See, we, we could, in, in other words, we could say Cyrus is out of his mind. <laughs> he was out of his mind and God was in it. This would not have happened by Cyrus's own volition. This would not have happened because he was such a good person. He wanted to be so good to the Israelites. These were his captive people. These were his slaves. These were his people that he could do whatever he wanted to do. But God goes ahead and puts in this idea. Oh, I must, you know, I really need to build a house to God. Not, just, not these other gods, but uh, this particular God. Let, let me let the Israelites go and build a house, the, the God who's given me my kingdoms, and let them build a house to him and let them go home. Yeah, that doesn't happen. But it is happening. And it did happen. But what we see here as well is we, we, the most important thing that we see here is, is God's priority at this point. Do you notice that God did not put into the mind of Cyrus that they should go back and build the walls of Jerusalem first so that they could be nice and safe? Is that what God's priority was? Actually, that would have made great sense militarily. You know, you go to a place, you take, you know, the U.S. Army, when, they goes, when, when we land into a place, the first thing you want to think about is security. You build up your defenses around, and then you start digging in and start building your infrastructure. Not so in God's mind. The number one priority for God was what? That they would commune with him in what? In worship. As a matter of fact, once they hit the ground in Jerusalem, the very first thing they did was to rebuild the altar so they could start that process. Uh, turn with me over to uh, chapter 3, if you would, just one page over. Chapter 3, verse 1 says this. Now, when the seventh month came and the sons of Israel were in the cities, and so they had gone back and you know, found their old cities where their ancestors had come from, and... <clears throat> 
The people gathered together as one man to Jerusalem. Then Jeshua, the son of Josadak, and his brothers, the priests, and Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, and his brothers arose and built the altar of God of Israel to offer burnt offerings on it, as it is written in the law of Moses, the man of God. So they set up the altar on its foundation, for they were terrified because of the people of the lands, and they offered burnt offerings on it to the Lord, burnt offerings morning and evening. And so the first thing that they could think of to do was that, okay, we're going to roll into town, we're going to dust off the place uh, where the altar was within the temple. They didn't even put up the, the, the walls of the temple first. They went straight to the object of worship, and that was the altar where sacrifices were, were to be made. As a matter of fact, it's very interesting. <coughs> Excuse me. <clears throat> you see in verse 3, it says, because, because they were terrified of the people in the land that they built the altar first. Okay, so this is how you, define your, uh, you defend your homes. Okay? Don't worry about your guns. Don't worry about your axes and your picks and all that. Go in and pray. <clears throat> that was the strategy. They were terrified, and the first thing they thought about was, let's worship God. There's some application there, isn't there? When you're terrified, when you're scared, what's the first thing that you do? Grab for whatever your strength is. Now, I, I have weapons. I'm, I'm a... I'm a guy for, you know, gun rights and that type of thing. You know, I'm in, I am in the military. Um, so I, there's nothing wrong with those. But what's the most effective form of defense? What's the most effective? Does anything happen out of a God's will? And for some strange reason, he wants to hear from us. They prayed. They set up the altar so that they could be protected, so that they could have that communion with God, first of all. The overriding principle I think that we're starting to get is that God puts a very high priority on corporate worship. Now, you didn't see here that everybody went to their own house and they were told to pray individually in their own, own, own homes, although that's a good strategy as well. What they, were, what they were doing, and they knew the priority was, was to come together and to pray together and to worship together, to offer sacrifices together. We could say that in God's eyes, at least from this example, from the example of, of Ezra, that corporate, uh, corporate worship is and was essential for the Israelites in their life. It was absolutely essential. It was the priority of God. And remember, what's happening here in the big picture as well is that all this that was happening is a fulfillment of prophecy. You see, the Israelites were going to go back and occupy the land again. And so this is a fulfillment of God's promise not to, to forsake them, but to preserve them. And part of the process of preservation of God's people was God's intent on returning the people to communal worship, worshiping together. So the essential in his eyes, <coughs> and it's the first thing that, they wanted, that God wanted them to do as they reestablished themselves in the land, was to worship. <coughs> Excuse me. Now before you, uh, you start thinking, well, that was God's priority in the Old Testament. 
You know, today, today things have changed, right? We live in New Testament time period. We're in the church age. I want to take you some, to some passages here in, in the New Testament to kind of continue to, to build on this idea about corporate worship and, and how essential it is for our lives. And besides uh, just laying down a foundation and understanding how God views corporate worship, I also want to show you that there was, there's purpose in corporate worship. And what we're going to see from the New Testament is the purpose of corporate worship. Go with me to Hebrews chapter 10, if you would, please. Now, we're not going to just stay there. We're, we'll jump to a couple other passages as well. <coughs> Turn with me, if you would, to Hebrews chapter 10. We're going to uh, read just a couple verses. <coughs> Hebrews chapter 10. I'm going to pick up our reading in verses uh, 24 and 25. Actually, let's back up to verse 23. So Hebrews chapter 10, verses 23, 24, and 25 says this. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stimulate one another to love and good deeds. Look at verse 25. Not forsaking our own assembling together, as is the habit of some, but encourage one another, and all the more as you see the day draw near. Immediately we see what God wants uh, from us when, uh, when we come together. I mean, he wants us, number one, to come together, to assemble together. That's not what it says, right? For Do not forsake your own assembling together, as is the habit of some. See, coming together is important for believers, we see it's important in God's eyes. You notice this is a command. It's not a suggestion. This is a command. If you look at the, at the uh, words in, in the Greek, these are commands. Coming together is important for believers. It's important for you and I. Because coming together, in coming together, we can get into each other's lives. Do you realize that? We get into one another's lives so that we can love and encourage one another in good deeds. We need to keep each other accountable. Sometimes we just need to say, ah, you shouldn't be doing that. And there's something about being together that God knows keeps us thriving as a body. You see, it's been good to be able to uh, worship, eh, let me put it in quotes, together on Facebook, right? Has everybody enjoyed the opportunity to do that when they were confined to your little spaces at home? Yeah, uh, that, was, that was okay. And there were some encouraging comments that came up. I was watching them as they, as, you know, scroll up there. People were hitting the little hearts, and I was just so warmed over that. And, you know, the thumbs up and, you know, all those buttons that you can put on there, those little emojis. Does everybody know what an emoji is? Okay, all right. Phew. All right. So th and that, that was good. But it can never replace the ability to do what you and I are doing this morning. And, and that's spending time together. And not just that, not just spending time sitting in pews, but spending time talking, interacting, digging deeper. You know, see, sitting at home in your pajamas in front of the, uh, watching Facebook, you can't see what's going on on a person's face, can you? You can't do it. You can't see that somebody's struggling, or you cannot see that somebody's extremely happy because something wonderful 
has happened in their life, and you can come alongside of them and, 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 and just, you know, glory together. You can't get that in your homes. And God knows this. He knows it. See, he didn't build us to live like lone rangers. God made us for one another. Uh, as you remember, do you remember, Pastor, he preached on the what? The one another's in Scripture? I mean, that's the whole purpose. The one another's were for one another. You can't want, have one another if you're not around each other. By the way, uh, let me just say this. I wasn't going to talk about this, but this Hebrew passage doesn't just restrict it to corporate worship. You need to assemble with other believers elsewhere as well. Uh, Sam Club events. Um, going out to dinner with one another. Bible studies with one another. Getting together is healthy. It's important. Now, we've got to do it kind of safe nowadays, right? Because of this virus. But, you know, when somebody has a flu or a cold, I just don't schedule appointments those days. You know, I don't want to spread what I got all over the place. I don't have anything right now, by the way. Let me just say that. Okay, you can come and talk to me. <laughs> but you understand what I'm saying. So number one, one of the reasons why God wants and sees it's so important for us to get together is, number one, for encouragement. There's another uh, passage I'd like to take you to, Matthew chapter 8. We'll quickly go there and then jump to my last point. Matthew chapter 8. <clears throat> now, Matthew chapter 8, once I get there. Matthew chapter 8, and we're going to drop down to verse 20. Uh, if you have a red-lettered Bible, I've mentioned this before, what's a red-letter uh, significant? Uh, wh what's it signify? Jesus is speaking there, okay? So leading up to, the, uh, up to this, you have the uh, Sermon on the Mount, and you eventually get over to ver uh, chapter 8. I'm going to drop... Um, Matthew chapter 8, did I grab the right one? Ay, ay, ay. I might have had a mistype. I apologize. Okay, well, I'm going to have to just kind of say it from memory. The verse that I was supposed to take you to is the verse that says, where there's two or more gathered in my name, I will be there. Matthew chapter 8, verse 20 doesn't say that. <laughs> so I've missed, uh, mistyped something here. So, um... I want you to think about that just for a moment. Where two or more are gathered in my name, there I will be also. This verse tells us that coming together, and by the way, the, the, I'll, I'll probably find it here when, when, when we decide to leave it, but the, the passage context was in discipline. Uh, there was some discipline that needed to happen, and so they were saying to, did you find it? Where is it? Matthew 18.20. Yeah, I left a, a one out. Thank you. All right, so chapter 18, one. 
So you, the early service is my guinea pigs. You see, I can clean things up before I get the second service. So, so, so chapter, uh, chapter 18, verse 20. I'm so sorry about that. Uh, let's back up uh, verse 19. And again, I say to you that if two, uh, two of you agree on earth and, uh, about anything that they may ask, it shall be done for them by my Father who is in heaven. And then verse 20 says, For where two or three have come and gathered together in my name, what's it say? There I am in their midst. See, when you come together specifically in the name of worship, when you've come together in this context, it was about prayer. They, they needed to make a decision, and so they were supposed to come together and pray about the decision. It was a discipline issue at this point. When they were come together, Jesus Christ, this is red letters again, Jesus Christ said this, where two or three come, uh, come together in my name, and there, there's the kicker. It wasn't just the get-together for golf or get-together for tea, but if you're together with tea and you're discussing Scripture and you're, you're worshiping the Lord together, that's the kicker. See, there is, what, what we learn here is that when two or three gather in his name, in the, in the aspect of worship, there is a special presence from the Lord there. I can't even go on and, and explain what that is specifically, but Scripture says that there is a specific presence that God himself has amongst people that gather in his name. So is there two or three gathered here this morning in his name? Yes, there is. Us. And because of that, God's special presence, Jesus Christ's special presence is here amongst us. Wow. I think that's pretty important. Is that important to have God am amongst us? Yes, absolutely. See, we're here to elevate his name. Sometimes we come together in er uh, for instances of discipline. Sometimes it's to encourage one another. And when we're doing that together in his name, Jesus Christ is there. And who doesn't want God in their presence? Let's go on to my last uh, section, and hopefully I typed it correctly. Ephesians chapter 5. <clears throat> so number one, what we saw today is we are, when we come together as God has instructed, it's to encourage one another. Number two, we have... Jesus' special presence amongst us. And then in Ephesians, Ephesians chapter 5, I'm going to drop down to uh, verse 18. We'll read 18 to 21. It says this. And do not get drunk with wine, for that is dissipation, but be filled with the Spirit, speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual song, singing, and making melody with your heart to the Lord, always giving thanks for all things in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, the God, even the Father, <coughs> and be subject to one another <coughs> in the fear of Christ. And so, uh, first of all, I'd like to make a, an observation. Um, it's kind of difficult to speak or to sing and speak songs to one another if you're not with one another? I mean, that's a no-brainer, right? You didn't need me to say that. But sometimes we need to slow down and see the nuances of our, our, our passages. And it says, this says making melody together to the Lord is something that corporate worship makes possible. You know, I've seen the Zoom. 
Have you guys seen Zoom? Where it's that application where there's a whole bunch of faces all over the screen. And even some, in some places, they've produced music like that. That's great. It's still not together. <laughs> um, I don't know how many of you, I'm, I'm kind of like one of those back row Baptists. When I'm not up here preaching, I'm sitting in the very back row uh, with my family. But when I've sat up here, especially on days like today where we're, we're singing together, we're lifting, uh, lifting up in, in harmony, in melody together, you can hear a difference in the voices. You can hear them coming together. You can hear them joining together. And it's much different than sitting way in the back. You can't do that. You can't, um, you can't experience the sense of awe of, of many people coming together for the purpose, the sole purpose to adore, to worship, to come together and elevate the name of God together. Uh, if you drop down to verse, uh, verse 21, it, it gives us a second reason, okay? We can, we can minister to one another in song, but we can also do this. Verse 20, 21 says, And be subject to one another in the fear of Christ. We are to be subject to one another. How can you be subject to one another if you don't come together? See, this speaks to our mutual service to one another. It's our opportunity to willingly put ourselves underneath one another rather than to strive to dominate. Have you ever been around uh, somebody that wants all the attention, they want to dominate all the time? That's, that's not the purpose for coming together. We should be competing to, to outserve each other when we come together. And it says when we come together, we have the opportunity to do that, to be subject to one another. See, we can't practice these things if we are isolated from one another. Being together is for, for worship is important. Are you getting that idea this morning that being together to worship together, is, is that important in God's eyes? Yes, it is. So no matter what our society is trying to tell us, this is essential. So let me just wind up our message this morning making a couple um, comments. I know I'm a little over time. Um, here's, here's a couple things I'd like you to think about. If God's attitude about corporate worship is just as we discussed this morning, we need to evaluate our own attitudes about corporate worship. God sees corporate worship as essential for his people. Do we? Do we see it as essential? See, how, how, do you, how can you tell if you actually see it as essential? Look at your planning book. See, I think a lot of times in our churches today, God has become a tack-on to everything else. Look at how you plan your days, your weeks. Look at your schedule. Do you schedule your doctor's appointments and this and that and your other thing, and, and then, then you look at what's going on at church? Or do you look at what's going on for the corporate body first and then make your plans? You know, there's some exceptions to all that, but it, it's just an indicator. Is what you think about church the last thing you think about or an afterthought? Then maybe church isn't as essential as you think it is or as you say it is. Second thing I'd like you to think about is this. 
Does it bother you when our society tries to restrict or encroach upon the church with our influence on society? Or does it bother you when it restricts our activities? It should bother us and propel us to action. I'm not talking about protest. <laughs> Please, let me not see you guys out there. Peace, River Baptist Church. Smash, smash, smash. Yeah. I'm talking about getting involved in the policy-setting activities of our government at many different levels, whatever level that is. If the activities of church and corporate worship are essential and necessary and something we can't do without, are we ready to defend them? If somebody tried to come and take your food, would you become active? <laughs> I think you would. What about worship? Last thing I'd like you to think about this morning is when you do plan to come to church, plan on encountering God. Interact with Him. Develop meaningful relationships while you're here. Set up appointments to, to be with other Christians so that you can minister to them. Remember, we're to outserve one another. If you're not coming together for these reasons, why are you wasting your time? I know that's kind of blunt, but think about it. If you do it for other than coming and worshiping him together and serving, why do you do it? Let me end this morning by, by quoting David from Psalm 34. Psalm 34, verses 1 to 3 says this, I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise shall continually be on, in my mouth. My soul makes its boast in the Lord. Let us humble, let us humble here and be glad. O magnify the Lord with me. And let us exalt his name together. Is worship important? Yes. It's essential for the life of a believer. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we love you and we